This episode is brought to you by Giant Keys. Are you looking for your car key again? Well, Giant Keys to the rescue. The Giant Keys company was founded with the mission that you should never misplace your keys, and they accomplished this with the ingenious solution of making your keys so gigantic that you simply cannot lose track of them. Giant Keys are the size of a rotisserie chicken. They dangle around your neck with a charming choice of pastel neon cords and offer an additional range of accessories like high-quality back braces. And now, listeners to the podcast can get half off of Giant Key's new ultra-light key model weighing only 2 kilograms. That's right, less than 3 pounds. How do they do it? Ancient era technology. Just go to their website and order with the promo code RERED, one word. And thank you, Giant Keys, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. And this episode is also brought to you by Mementos, the fine craftsmen of remembrances, commemoratives, souvenirs, tokens, memorials, monuments, cenotaphs, markers, cairns, tributes, and testimonials. If you don't want something to slip your mind, treat yourself to Mementos. And if you remember to call in the next 24 hours, they'll send you, for free plus shipping and handling, their Mementos Mori wristband. It's a braided hemp bracelet that slips onto your wrist as a constant reminder that you must die. And in the event that you do forget at any time, it will immediately inject you with a deadly painful poison. Now that's an alarm clock. And thank you, Mementos, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we've read these books. We're going to try and understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. We're going to jump right into the chapter here, but if you want an introduction to who we are and what we're doing here, listen to episode one. It's short, I promise. We start with an epigraph. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Isaac Watts, my God, my help. So when you know the story, when you've read through it all before, this seems perfectly appropriate. And I think as I think it was Mark Aramini who points out um, in his book that in some ways, some of the overarching plot is just right here. It seems to refer to Severian's view of time and his memory. Thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. It's like it just happened. One thing I would say too is about this is that if especially if you read the rest of the poem, what's kind of interesting is what surrounds this this one stanza that he pulled up here. So the very the stanza right before it um, is talking about how the last two lines are all nations rose from earth at first and turned to earth again. Um, so there's obviously this sense of cycles and of things passing away. But then this stanza comes in and says all of that time is actually presaging is a good word. Things that are about to happen, the, the sun that's going to be rising, that obviously is a metaphor or in the context of the actual poem, you know, it is about Christ is about the Messiah that's coming. What's also interesting then is that the stanza afterwards says, this is going to come at a cost. The busy tribes of flesh and blood with all their lives and cares are carried downwards by thy flood and lost in following years. So this isn't just a happy sort of, hey, don't worry, the sun's going to rise again. What surrounds this is this image, first of all, of a kind of hopelessness and meaninglessness in the first part. And then in the stanza after, there's the flood, the flood that's going to destroy all of the sort of mere flesh and blood and old lives and cares. Um, and that old stuff will be lost. It could almost be a hymn from the future, from Severian's world. Yeah. Is it actually a hymn? Is it sung? Yes. Oh, yeah. It yes. is. Okay. That's where I will admit that I'm I'm going to know less church things. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Isaac Watts is the writer of so many of our hymns, uh, most famously Joy to the World. He was kind of a, a modernistic uh, writer, so he was maybe a little bit edgy in his day. Yeah. So in many ways, this is the stanza that he chose. What I think is, is nice, though, is that as far as the world that we're going to see, 
the sense of time that's passed before this happens is the first thing that, or that he really emphasizes here, that is a thousand ages can pass so quickly, like an evening gone short as the watch that ends the night, you know, just they, they can seem so small and so short, even if you've had massive amounts of time. Um, and I think that's interesting because not only do we get the, the sort of amount of time that's passed here, but also there's a big emphasis on how perception can affect that thing or, or that actual sense of time. In other words, no matter how many thousand ages, they can seem really short. And we all know that we're going to get a narrator here in a minute who is going to show us you know, how things just seem to him in many ways. I thought that was kind of a neat little moment where which is perfect for Wolf. Wolf, you have the reality behind the thing that is not exactly what it always seems like. I really like that. Since the epigraph is a hymn, does that suggest anything particular? Or do you think it it was just more because of the, the content of it? Well, I know that a lot of people have a different view on this, but I'm not convinced that this is a christian allegory wolf was a was a believing religious christian and there are a lot of references to this in in the book i mean just the term the conciliator is a christ term and so he is a kind of messiah in his world but i'm not convinced that this is like narnia he has christianity built into the architecture and in the in the woodwork but severian is i think of course there's a saint severian but before i had read this the severian i knew from literature was from saint ignatius that i had come from reading uh, eusebius's the history of the church and he was a, a gnostic heretic the gnostics had these beliefs in endless what they called eons but it, levels of gods who each created and created them each god created another god and the the gods were less than the gods above them and that, that's very much like the world that severian lives in the world he's in is is a Gnostic world. And I, I actually feel that in the Book of the Long Sun, that Silk is in the same situation and that his world is also a Gnostic world. There's a lot of Gnostic references in there as well. So Severian might be kind of like Silk in that he's a good man in a bad world. And, the, and he's trying to become, you know, a, a, a truly good man. And, and make his way in that world. Yeah, I, I agree. And actually, that's that's getting sort of to the heart of the question that I have about the, the role of religion in here, because I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, this is and, and Wolf has even said in interviews that, you know, Severian is not supposed to be himself Christ, um, but he said he's a Christian. He's a Christian. Yeah. Um, which I always thought was sort of an interesting phrase because he says he's a Christian rather than just a good man. Um, and that makes that's one of the things that makes me wonder, OK, well, in what sense is Book of the New Sun religious or in what way is it just borrowing, like you said, certain of the landscapes and the, the, the background? But no, that's my question is, what is the real role of religion in relation to this book? Is it just a series of illusions um, and things that can help us understand what's going on? Or is there some way that that Wolf has actually weaved into this actual Christian meaning? And is Severian's story connected somehow to a Christian story? That's a question I have, because I don't have a good answer right now. Chapter 1, Resurrection and Death. It is possible I already had some presentiment of my future. So right there, he alerts us that this is a flashback. And I appreciate that, because Wolf does not always let us in on these things early. The entire novel is a flashback. Severian is actually writing this down long after every event in this story. But as is Wolf's way, this claim that he had some presentiment of his future is not going to be 100% explained right away. He says that says this, he says that this initial event occurs after a just previous event that he and his friends, now with him, were coming back from a swim during which he nearly drowned. Yeah, and so immediately I think you can say that you have a question of when he talks about his future, does he mean the future in terms of the whole book? Or does he mean the future in the sense of these particular uh, events? events? And yeah, and that's that's just that's just good Wolfianisms right there. Is what that is. <laughs> 
One thing I also want to say just from the beginning that since you're the first chapter title that you see is resurrection and death. And the one thing that stood out to me, and I always remember this as standing out, is that it always seemed to me that those should be switched, that the more natural way to say it is death and resurrection. That has all kinds of possible meanings or reasons when you first do it or suggestions. Um, usually resurrection is what defeats death. But here resurrection comes first and death comes after. From the very beginning, your sense of time is a little skewed. I think. And of course, you know, whose resurrection, whose death? They might not be the same people. Exactly. So. Okay, well, let's keep reading just a little bit. The locked and rusted gate that stood before us with wisps of river fog threading its spikes like the mountain paths remains in my mind now as the symbol of my exile. That is why I have begun this account of it with the aftermath of our swim in which I, the torturer's apprentice, Severian, had so nearly drowned. So that first paragraph, we get a ton of different things. We get the presentiment of the future. We get a few hints about things that he had gone through. We find out he's going to be exiled at some point. He mentions the swim. He also says that he's just now, of course, come from nearly drowning. You're not going to find this out in these four volumes. No one ever picked up on this until Earth of the New Sun, where he clearly shows it. But it's clear that Wolf had intended that the future is that the the new sun would come and it would cause havoc on Earth. Civilization would be entirely drowned. So it's possible that he's referring to that. Yep. And what I also think is cool is how he just throws in there at the end that he's a torturer's apprentice. And of course, when you read the book for the first time, that's what usually stands up more than anything else that, oh, I'm about to read a book about a torturer. Okay, that's odd. <laughs> Not a torturer, a torturer's apprentice. A torturer's apprentice. Yeah, exactly. So um, when you first saw his name, did anything strike out? Do you remember at all what his name suggested or did you just take it as a name? I just took it as a name at the time. Although I, as I said, I had heard of a Severian in the past. I suppose later in the next chapter when he would talk about when apprentices would come to the guild, that if a woman was pregnant, she'd be opened. I'd say, oh, well, maybe that's something to do with it. But there are so many things that Severian could refer to. It means it's a severing. Uh, it could be the, the two futures of Earth that could have happened, either a rebirth or a death. I have to admit, I actually remember what I thought when I was reading it actually for the first time all the way through, that I couldn't get out of my head that it was severe rather than severe than sever. Uh... And so that was, I kept always imagining Severian as this incredibly serious guy. Um <laughs> And I think that actually shaded a whole lot of ways that I react to things. And I still sort of get that that sense of it. But I remember because it was when he was doing his first execution that I was like, oh, severed heads. And I felt like an idiot because <laughs> <laughs> it was like it hadn't, it hadn't clicked to me until then. Um, yeah. Why aren't they all? Why don't they name them all Severian? Exactly. That's what they're exactly. going to be doing. So we start with Severian and his friends at a locked iron gate. It doesn't say so here, but apparently nearby there is a con. It's an unfinished free room for travelers. And on top of that con is a statue of night, perhaps a representation of the Greek primordial god Nyx, maybe another culture's personification of night. The gate is a passage that is otherwise blocked by a long wall that goes along through a slum up a hill until you reach the curtain wall of the citadel. So we're outside the city proper here. And we should note, too, that the book opens and closes with the gate, that the trajectory of the book is to go from one gate to another. And uh, Severian even points that out. Yes, at the end where he says gate to gate. The idea here of gates, of, you know, separations between areas, but also something that allows passage between one area and another seems to me we ought to take that as a really powerful symbol and think about, you know, how much everything in this book um, is about gates and about moving from one area to another. Moving into a gate, moving out of a gate, you have uh, Janus, two-faced, god of gates. Yeah, there's so much in here. Yep, but right now we're still trying to get our, get our heads wrapped around these little boys who are apparently torturers apprentices. Locked outside of a, of a gate. Yes. There's supposed to be a guard at this gate, but he's not there. Behind them, the slum extends to the river where they were swimming. They're still wet from swimming. The river is named Giol, and I should mention that this is probably the first time I've said a lot of these words and names out loud ever <laughs> in my life. 
Mm -hmm. So we should probably mention that this particular country we are in is called the Commonwealth. But unlike Fallout 4, this is not the ruins of Boston. (laughs) We learned that there are four boys here. And so here we're going to give this a shot. There's Severian, there's Drota, Rosha, and Iada. One thing we should note about the names that I don't think is at all obvious to anyone at this point, but all the humans in the book are named after saints or all the natural humans, I suppose we should say creatures that are more artificial uh, or that are going against humanity in some way or another have names from literature like Talos or Baldanders. And once you know that you can drive yourself crazy by going and looking everything up. Um, And one thing I've always wanted, I remember someone somewhere mentioned that there was a very specific lives of the saints that, Wolf had and that he used to refer to. And I so wish I knew exactly what that was because, you know, a lot of times you find, you know, different sources for certain saints and you just get different versions of the stories, but it would be so nice to know exactly which one he might've been looking at. I don't think we're going to do anything with the saints for these boys, but sure enough, there are actual saints connected to all these guys. Yada suggests that they go around the, uh, one of them, arguably Rosha, but it, it could be any one of them says and try to get through the barbican without a safe conduct they'd send to master gurloes uh, a barbican is an outer defense of a castle or a walled city especially a double tower above a gate or a drawbridge again we have a gate apparently to get into the citadel after curfew you need some vouching that you belong there and they don't want to send for master gurloes because they're out after curfew. It's like Harry Potter and his friends trying to get back into Gryffindor house at night. And they don't want to ask Professor McGonagall. Apparently they know a secret way into the Citadel through this gate, maybe through a talking portrait or something. Now, incidentally, this way that of, of dialogue, this is very characteristic of Wolf. Multiple back and forths where it's not 100% clear who's speaking so they decide to have Yada, who is the youngest and smallest, try to slip through the bars of the gate. The narrator says that Drota is their captain. And we learn that he's the captain of the apprentices. Both the, both Severian and Rosha are apprentices. Yada isn't an apprentice yet. Uh, but even, even little Yada can't slip through the gate. Then Rosha sees a group of people coming with lanterns. He points out that they are carrying pikes, spears, and someone says, maybe it's the guard coming back, but there's too many, at least a dozen men. It's important, once he mentions the pikes, I think that's one of the first times that probably when you're reading it for the first time, this solidifies that, oh, I'm in some kind of fantasy setting in some way or another because you know we've got hand weapons instead of things but they've got lanterns there's the iron gate um he's got the we have the word the citadel so obviously he's intentionally trying to set this up to make you think um you know older i mean i always imagine something i don't know like 18th century maybe i mean it's sort of what things look like but obviously we we're immediately gonna think okay you know the time of where we've got iron and we've got hand weapons and things like that Mm -hmm. but of course we know that that's gonna be all blown up in a bit just sort of for how he works he's definitely setting you up to think that and immediately after they see these men coming up severian breaks he says still wet from the guile we waited in the recesses of my mind we stand shivering there even now Just as all that appears imperishable tends towards its own destruction, those moments that at the time seemed the most fleeting recreate themselves, not only in my memory, which in the final accounting loses nothing, but in the throbbing of my heart and the prickling of my hair, making themselves new, just as our commonwealth reconstitutes itself each morning in the shrill tones of its own clarions. So this is the first time he mentions that he has this perfect memory. Yep. One thing I've always wanted to know is that he he doesn't use the word perfect. And even though we always, I always say it's perfect memory, but the way he says it is that in the final accounting, it loses nothing. And it's that phrase in the final accounting, which always makes me wonder, okay, what does he mean by that? Like, is that something that says, you know, as far as the important things, I lose nothing. Or is it meaning the final accounting where every little bit is added up? 
but there is a part where he talks about his memory where he finds it so strange other people talking about memory mm-hmm. as though it's something far off when for him it's it's right there yep one other thing i noticed this time is that he doesn't present his memory as if it's just sort of a record that he has stuck in the back of his head instead That last part where he says that those memories, those scenes that seemed fleeting, recreate themselves. And he actually uses that word recreate themselves, making themselves new again, just as our commonwealth reconstitutes itself each morning. It's just it's very intentional that he specifically starts to say how his memory sort of brings things back and maybe gives them new birth again, rather than just saying it's just all there at one time. Um, Just wanted to note that the imagery yeah. is very connected to resurrection and death. Well, I think the I think the science on this is probably newer, too new for for Wolf to have been aware of it, but the idea of memory is that it's kind of a mystery still exactly how we remember things. We don't there's not a place in our brains where every event is stored and we just gets overwritten like a computer or lost so that you can't access it every time you remember something your brain does actually have to recreate it yeah and i just like that it's there because it fits so well with the other themes that we're going to talk about you know throughout the whole book but also here of the earth needing to be i mean the sun needing to be reborn um that's how his memory functions too and it's also just fun that he starts that paragraph just by saying i was still wet from the geol 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 how are we saying it? I, Did we I like Yol. That was yours. That was like, okay. Wow, that's great. Okay, cool. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go with that. Again, we didn't look up how to pronounce a lot of these words beforehand. So maybe we'll try I'll for try other ones. Better. But I, I I think it's more fun to do it our own way. <laughs> um, but yeah, he says we're still wet from the gill, which we're going to find out is where he was resurrected. We'll, we'll talk about that. And then also it's resurrection that makes him think about his memory. Resurrection is what reminds him of his memory. And then as soon as he finishes this long discussion about his memory, he says, the men had no armor as I could soon see by the sickly yellow light of the lanterns, but they had pikes as Drota had said. What the heck? Right. The first time you read it, of course, you're not paying attention. But Drota didn't say it. Iata said it. Or no, Rosha um, said it. Rosha said it. Or Rosha said it. Sorry. Yeah. See, even I forget. I mean, it can't be. It's not a copy editor's mistake. Right. I mean, it's the first page of the novel. <laughs> He's just talked about it being a perfect memory. And literally the next. Is it the next? Yes. Sentence? The very. Yes, next it sentence. is literally the next sentence. He makes a mistake or he does. He make a mistake. That's often the big question, too, that when things like this happen. Why do they happen? Is yeah. Severian wrong? Are we finding out something here about how his memory works? Is he intentionally trying to tell us that, hey, sometimes I lie about my own memory? Or is this a mistake? Is he not as perfect as he thinks he is? Later, we're going to find out that there's multiple iterations of the same universe going on and on and on, and that the uh, Hygramatis are hunting for this person, Severian, for the one that will will become the new son, just so that they can raise him up and make sure that it happens that way. Yeah. So perhaps these are all memories of different iterations. And I was going to say, with that actually coming right after the point where he said, hey, my memory is always like a recreation of things that have happened. Mm. That fits. <laughs> that that really does fit. <laughs> that What he's kind of doing is talking about multiple ones. Of course, we have no idea that that's going on right now when you first read it. But looking back, the fact that that, that mistake is right there has I know there are some people who say it just has to be a mistake, that that it doesn't make any sense, that there's nothing else to explain it in the chapter. I can't believe it's a mistake. I feel like it has to be intentionally there. So, but- Well, hold on to your britches because he's <laughs> going to do it again before this chapter's over. Yep. yep. Okay, we'll keep going. The leader of the men carries a two-edged knife and a big key hanging on a cord around his neck. It probably goes to the gate. <laughs> what do you think about this guy? I think I've told you before, this guy always bugs me. Um, <laughs> that, that the fact that I always think since he's wearing a key, something about this guy needs to be important, but I could never figure out what it was. Um, <laughs> you know, of course, maybe he's just the guy who happened to know the guy and he can get into the graveyard. He's the Cliff Clavin. Of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Um, but I always did wonder um, if the fact that he has a key means that I should be paying more attention to this volunteer, but I've never been able to, to figure yeah, out. And he's not going to survive after through this chapter. Anyway, right. So. <laughs> right. Right. So if he's going to do something important, he better hurry up and do it. So they, they say that they're volunteers and they've come to protect their dead. This is a graveyard that they're outside of. And actually, it's a very big graveyard called the Necropolis, which means a city of the dead what they're protecting their dead from hmm well but the volunteers are not going to let them in no one is allowed in except for the volunteers but as soon as he opens the gate little yada slips in and runs into the necropolis he disappears into quote a thicket of statuary that's very descriptive yeah it's a really cool phrase most of the volunteers chase him there are only two left it says that stop the rest of the boys Drota says that they have to go and find Iata, and he says, we're not going to rob your dead. And that seems to be a problem in this neighborhood. One of the remaining volunteers asks him who they are, and he says that they're physicians gallopots, which it's an old name for a pharmacist. He says that some medical herbs, simples, he calls them, have to be harvested by moonlight from grave soil. Drota says they work with a different doctor, each of them. And they hired little Ayata to help them. Now, something happens here that seems like just a tiny moment, but I actually think is pretty important for how we read some of the other things that Severian says in this chapter. So the volunteer is still not sure. So Drott turns the tables on negotiation. Instead, rather than try to convince the volunteer to let them in, he steps away from the gate. He says, oh, you know, we'll just go. He doesn't think that they'll ever be able to find Ayata in there now. And suddenly, you know, the, the volunteer's attitude completely changes. He says, no, no, no. Now he's saying, no, you have, it, you have to go in there. You have to get him out. And I think that that is just a really insightful uh, uh, characterization of negotiation where you're talking to somebody and it's everybody, you, you make a request, it's everybody's uh, inclination to first say no because there's less risk in saying no. So he changes the, the negotiate, ch- ch- changes the tables so that he, the volunteer has to say no in the way he ah, wants interesting. to say no. Interesting. No, that's really, I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but I like that. Um, the other thing I noticed, one thing this is doing is showing one person manipulating another person. Um, and actually showing how you can change someone else's mind. And it's a small thing, but we're going to talk about maybe why it's not so small. But in a book where, like I said before, I feel like this a big thing here is about how much choice we have and how much our actions are determined by other things, that to show this little moment where even just a kid can take you know, a grown man who's there on, a, on what he thinks is very serious business and manipulate him and make him <laughs> change his opinion says a lot about, okay, how whenever we think we're free or doing what we want to, in what ways are we being acted on? And the other way is that framing is everything. Mm -hmm. We assume that everything means this and nothing else. But in fact, things mean what they mean because of the context in which they're placed. Yep. And right after this, he actually says something like that. We get the first of two places in here where Severian talks about how words or symbols have way more power over us than we often think they do, even and especially when we don't know that they're working on us. Here, let me read that. Draw to actually step back from it. If you won't let us gather the herbs, we'd better go. I don't think we could ever find that boy in there now. No, you don't. We have to get him out. All right. Drota said reluctantly, and we step through, the volunteers following. Certain myths aver that the real world has been constructed by the human mind, since our ways are governed by the artificial categories into which we place essentially undifferentiated things, things weaker than our words for them. I understood the principle intuitively that night as I heard the last volunteer swing the gate behind us. So it's not just him saying, you know, oh, you can manipulate people, but he actually is saying that our words, our categories for things are more powerful than, than in some cases us. And I like that he says that there are things weaker than our words for them. By itself, it might seem like a just an aside, except like I said, we're going to come back to it again. 
And that same idea gets raised again in this chapter. I want to find the, the spot where they name the, the, mention the number of men. So they said before there's only a, a couple of men left after Yada ran in there. And he says, but after they swung the door open and let them in, a man who hadn't spoken before says, I'm going to go watch over my mother. Several of the others muttered in agreement, and the group began to scatter, one lantern moving to the left and the other to the right. Suddenly, there's a lot more people than he had mentioned before. Yeah, so that's our second time when Severian seems to get his memory wrong. And this one's slightly more subtle, but still, I think because he specifically before said two men were left, it has to be. I mean, nothing is, surely nothing is more carefully combed over by a writer than the first chapter. So the organization of the volunteers had completely broken down. Every man is for himself now. The last other volunteer left says he's going to guard his mother's grave. The boys and someone of the remaining, some of the remaining volunteers go up the center path. And now we learn that there is a fallen in section of the Citadel curtain wall of the necropolis that they use to sneak in and out after hours. Then again, right after this, he mentions his memory again. In it is my nature, my joy, and my curse to forget nothing. Every rattling chain and whistling wind, every sight, smell, and taste remains changeless in my mind. And though I know it's not so with everyone, I can't imagine what it can mean to be otherwise, as if one had slept when in fact an experience is merely remote. So he says that. Um, and again, this time he says that his memory remains changeless. <laughs> We've just had an instance where that's that's put in doubt. Exactly. So one thing that, that always strikes me when I hit places like this is that Mark Armini says, and it's a good rule, that in one way or another, everything that Wolf has his characters say is going to be true. It just may not be at all true in the way that you understand it the first time you read it. Yeah. So. Honestly, that thing we just talked about, where is he possibly remembering different iterations? That mm. seems like one way that he could be absolutely telling the truth here and that he's just recalling different versions. Um, that could be. That's a that's a big claim that totally makes a lot of things about this book way more complicated. Um, but <laughs> but nonetheless, it's sort of a good rule of thumb that I think is always try to figure out not just that someone is just flat out lying, but how can what they say be true just in very different ways than we might suspect. I remember telling the guy who originally loaned me those books, and I read the portion about uh, Rosha and Drogt uh, in this quote, and he said, oh my gosh, that's disheartening. <laughs> this is, that's taking the you know, unreliable narrator too far. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe, I mean, we always call Severian unreliable. He may not be. Like, what if he actually is telling us the truth about these things, but doing something totally different? Um, right. Maybe yeah. he's not wrong or he's not lying, but he might be manipulating us in just different ways. I think Wolf said something about that, about his unreliable narrators. I might, maybe it was Horn or someone. Mm -hmm. He says, he's, well, he's, he's trying to tell the, the truth as well as he knows it. Yeah. And that's so. the thing to remember too, is that all of these are always from a perspective. And just because the reality may be different from the perspective doesn't mean that then that person is lying or that they may not even be aware of that difference. Right. Yeah. So just another point that he's specifically saying his memory is changeless. And then he goes on to describe what he sees as he's running through the graveyard. There's one part here that just made me wonder. And again, this may be reading too much into it, but he talks about how they could see the path because it was white. But then he's talked about how it's foggy here. It's dark. We also know the light here is very dim, even at noon. And so what he then says is he says a few birds had come to roost uh, in the pines and cypresses and flapped uneasily from tree to tree. And the only thing that always bugs me is I'm like, how can he actually see up in the trees to see these birds flying around if it's just so hard to see everything else? <laughs> you know, like in a, a minute, he's going to bump into the guy and he's just a couple feet away from him and the guy can't see him. So how can he see the, the birds up in the trees? I don't even know if that's a thing or if, <laughs> but again, when you're trying to take Wolf very intentionally at everything he's saying, that's one thing that stood out to me as well. There was a shot, a thing I had never seen before, a bolt of violet energy splitting the darkness like a wedge so that it closed with a thunderclap. Somewhere a monument fell with a crash. Silence then in which everything around me seemed to dissolve. We began to run. Men were shouting, 
far off, I heard a ring of steel on stone, as if someone had struck one of the grave markers with a bottle air. I dashed along a path that was, or at least then seemed, completely unfamiliar. A ribbon of broken bone, just wide enough for two to walk abreast, that wound down into a little dale. In the fog, I could see nothing but the dark bulk of the memorials on either side. Then, as suddenly as if it had been snatched away, the path was no longer beneath my feet. I suppose I must have failed to notice some turning. I swerved to dodge an obelisk that appeared to shoot up before me and collided full tilt with a man in a black coat. He does have that moment of just confusion where he says he dashed along a path that was or then seemed completely unfamiliar. So what I like about that little tiny aside there is in the midst of everything else, it's a moment where he tells you something that seems like it might violate his rule about perfect memory, but then he admits, oh no, maybe it just seemed to me then, but it wasn't completely unfamiliar. <laughs> a bottle air, by the way, is a scimitar, uh, like a short knife with a S-shaped cross guard. The weapon or animal in this world may not always be the weapon or animal named because it, it could just refer to that they're using the same type of use that someone would in that sense, or maybe it looks a little bit like it, but this is thousands, maybe a million years in the future and not necessarily our future. Yeah. And I really like that as a storytelling strategy because Wolf even says in, in one of the afterwards later, he's like, yeah, look, I chose the words that were best to try and translate what I had here. It's not going to be exact, but it's going to be right in one way or another, which is really frustrating <laughs> because <laughs> then you, it's sort of like him saying, yeah. And by the way, sometimes the words that I use are not the exact right words. Yeah. For instance, he'll use a word like a, like an onager, which a type of pony. Mm -hmm. But when you do get a description, oh, well, this is not actually a horse right. at all. It's being used for a similar purpose. Yeah. So Severian takes off down that path. And now we know that the path seems to be made of broken bones. At one point, he mentions a Chalcedony angel. Chalcedony is a translucent mineral. So it's tempting to imagine, you know, this graveyard is a conventional one. But I think it is possible to imagine a more science fiction-y graveyard of translucent monuments like you'd see in a 60s pulp sci-fi novel. <laughs> and also, that's just a really cool image to all of a sudden be in a graveyard where the monuments themselves can look kind of ghostly. Also, too, there's a lot of things going on here that seem very gothy. You know, it's all dark. We're in a graveyard. There's bone everywhere. You know, that was like I said before, that was one of the things that kind of turned me off <laughs> initially. <laughs> well, as as Wolf said, he designed Severian with the idea that no one had ever cosplayed any of his characters before. and He wanted to see people cosplay them at conventions. Yeah, and I felt really bad because when I read that, I was like, oh, I don't know if sci-fi fantasy guys are really the ones you want to see walking around with those shirts on. <laughs> well, I was one could, of them too, I have to say. They could, they could be Master Mount Rubius or something. Like <laughs> exactly. So he misses a turning in the path, tries to dodge an obelisk, and he runs into a big man with a long black coat. This man's really solid. Severian's knocked off his feet, and his breath is knocked out of him. To the man himself, he doesn't even seem to be greatly disturbed. He kind of turns a weapon around in his direction, but he doesn't see anything. So he just goes back to work. <laughs> right, which seems so odd to me that he even just reports that somebody ran into me. Gone now, whoever he was. I'm like, <laughs> you're in the middle of robbing a grave and somebody <laughs> literally runs into you. And all you do is say, yeah, he's gone. <laughs> which, but yeah, of course he isn't. Like he doesn't check. He doesn't. Yeah, it just seems so unfazed. Everybody in this robbery, they don't seem to be as concerned as they are, even though at some point near the end, they do seem to be very worried. But really, most of the time, they don't seem very concerned about these people at all. Yeah. So there's there's three of them. There's two men and a woman. The woman, he says, has the voice of a dove. He makes a big deal of that. I'm not sure. I always wanted to come up with some sort of reason for why that is. The second man says, what was that? And we'll soon learn that. That guy's name is Voldalus. He's the guy who fired the weapon. He regrets bringing it. Shouldn't need it against these sort of people. Although Severian doesn't know at the time, Voldalus's accent identifies him as an exultant. Mm -hmm. He's very tall and thin, not wearing a hat. This is also the first time that we're going to notice that being tall and being thin marks you as higher class. I know people have speculated on why that is, that being a higher class might also mean that you're from off world because you've lived somewhere or your lineage is from somewhere that has lighter gravity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly a possibility that comes through. But for the moment, it's just important to know that height and slenderness is a marker of class. The very top class. Yep. The woman, we learn her name is Thea. She has a heart-shaped face, and she's nearly as tall and thin as Volus. So she's probably an exalted too. The first man, the man that Severian ran into, is broader than Volus, and he's wearing some kind of hat with a crown. I'd say he's deferential to Volus and Thea. Mm-hmm. He calls Thea Madam and Bodilus Liege. So now we see that they are working over an open grave and pulling a body out of it. And that's why everyone is there to protect the graves of their family members. And it's not the local juvenile delinquents who are the problem. There's out-of-towners showing up to steal their those sweet, sweet, fresh corpses. <laughs> the woman asks, how is she? And the first man, whose name is Hildegren, says... Fresh as a flower, hardly a breath of stink on her, nothing to worry about. I guess we should say something about the division of technology in this class of society as well. All the people in the area have you know, old-fashioned weapons, apparently. They have pikes, they have swords and knives. Uh, Vodalus is carrying a ray gun, right. and they have some kind of lighting device that Severian has never seen. And he's going to take off in a spaceship soon, or a, a flying ship. And anyway, his uh, his lying device is categorically brighter than a meter lantern. Speaking of weapons, one thing we'll jump ahead real quick. We also find out that Vodalus has a, a cane sword, which and, and that's just to jump ahead. It's important also that later on, Dr. Talos has a cane sword. Yes. Um, and we can talk about later why that is or how Talos got the cane sword. But that's one of those images that you're yeah. supposed to remember. Silk gets a cane sword also. That's right. He, that's Volus, and the heavy man grunted as they pulled, and I saw something white appear at their feet. They bent to lift it, as though an Amshapan had touched them with his radiant wand. The fog swirled and parted to let a beam of green moonlight fall. They had a corpse of a woman. Her hair, which had been dark, was in some disorder about her livid face. She wore a long gown of some pale fabric. An Amshapan! Technically, that's a divine being of Zoroastrianism. It literally means a holy immortal, but otherwise it's called a divine spark. I, honestly, I've always imagined Tinkerbell flying in and tapping her wand <laughs> at the beginning of Wonderful World of Disney. Again, we don't know what it specifically means in this world. The one thing that it does connect to me is that in the next chapter, Severian's going to talk about how he always had two thoughts. And one was that the the sun would wink out. And then the other one was that there was a divine light. And this idea here of having bright things suddenly in the middle of a dark place fits what's going to happen with the sun eventually. But the light that he's talking about here isn't like the light from a lantern. It's He says that the fog swirled and parted to let a beam of green moonlight fall. And the one thing you probably never notice the first time you read this is the moonlight is green. Um, but it is literally green. It is, it's not just metaphorically green or sort of he's not being talking about sickly light coming through the fog. The moon is literally green. Because it's forested. It's been, and forested so far in, in the past that Severian calls it in man's infancy. They get the body out, a young woman with dark hair, and they plan to drag her to the wall and heft her over. Suddenly, three volunteers show up. Bodilus gives his gun to Hildegrin and tells him to get the body and Thea to safety. The man is shocked. He says, well, I've never used one. So here again, we see the division of technology. This is not a device that a non-exultant has access to. Thea takes the gun from him and the two back into the fog with the body. The volunteers show up. One has a pike. Another has an axe. The third is the leader from the original group. So I assume he still has that double-edged dagger. Bodilus pulls out what looks like a stick and voila, it's a sword cane. They're circling him from three sides and he points his sword in each of their directions. The leader says, who are you and what power of Erebus gives you the right to come here and do something like this? Erebus? So here we get a reference to one of the massive alien creatures that live in various parts of the planet and their powers themselves. They have followers, whole countries that pledge allegiance to one or the other of them. Erebus in mythology is the darkness of death, the darkness of the underworld. It's a primordial god. But in this case, he's as big as a mountain 
and he is located in Antarctica, which incidentally has a mountain called Mount Erebus. Well, one thing that's interesting about that is since he's the the guardian of the underworld, usually when I read this line, I think he's just basically kind of saying like, what power of hell lets you come here? You know, some kind of something like that. But if Erebus guards the underworld, it's almost like saying, why did the god of the underworld give you permission to come mess with the dead? You know, Erebus is an actual person, one of several monstrous alien powers that has settled on the planet and exerts influence. The aliens have partisans, and Erebus actually controls a whole nation to the north of the Commonwealth. So it's like he's accusing Votilus of being a terrorist. Which he is. And we're going to find out that Votilus has pledged allegiance to Erebus and uh, Abaya as well. Three move in on him, and Votilus fends off the, the pike guy, but he steps back to keep them from getting behind him, and he trips on some dirt that was excavated from the grave and falls. But in watching this, Severian becomes sympathetic to Bolus. He likes the idea of him willing to give up his life protecting a woman. We get some foreshadowing here, but the upshot is that he considers himself a follower of Bolus for a long while in the future from this moment. The volunteers move in and Bolus continues to fight with his sword while on his back. The leader brings down his knife, which Vodalus barely dodges. The knife buries in the ground to the hilt. Vodalus knocks the knife from the guy's hand. And now they're both wrestling on the edge of the grave. The guy with the axe circles around them to get a good shot at Vodalus. Vodalus pulls the knife from the ground and stabs the volunteer in the throat. And now the guy with the axe has a clear view of Vodalus. He raises the axe to give him a good whacking, but Severian grabs the hilt and now the narrator is, now Severian is completely in the fight. And and this is typical of the way action scenes with Wolf are. The fight is suddenly over. The guy with the axe is dead. The leader of the, Vodalier, of the, of the volunteers is dying. The guy with the pike has dropped it and run away. Volus sheaths his sword cane and says to Severian, who are you? Right. And before we get to his answer is that Severian's telling this because this is the moment he decided that he was going to follow Vodalus, which seems like we would find out a lot about his motivations here. What he says, though, is that he's still trying to figure out why he decided to do this. He says, yet something touched me. And perhaps it was Vodalus's willingness to die. Like he never comes definitively out and says, now that I'm looking back at this, I know exactly why I did this. There's still this sense in him that he's not exactly sure why he picked his side. And even when he talks about, you know, wanting to imagine himself doing it, it's not complete. It's like many times I've still thought back at this time. Um, I have half pretended when he was executing someone that it was he was doing it for Vodalus. There's still a lot of hesitancy here. Looking back, we know that, of course, he's not going to remain a follower of Vodalus forever. But I don't think that's the point of the hesitancy here. It seems more like what Wolf is trying to point out is that the reasons why Severian started on down on this path, he wasn't exactly sure of. And it seems to me like he's really highlighting that, like, like trying to point out and say, I didn't know exactly why I did this thing. And I think that's going to be important, definitely, as we go on to think about, you know, is Severian choosing these things or other forces choosing him? Because we also get a pretty famous passage in a few minutes that is very much saying a lot of the times we don't quite know what we're turning into and that other powers like symbols are going to take over. Well, I'm going to read this passage because it's really key to a lot of things. It says, he asks him, who are you? And he says, Severian, I am a torturer, or rather, I'm an apprentice of the torturer's liege of the order of the seekers for truth and penitence. I am a Vodalarius, one of the thousands of Vodalari whose existence you are unaware it was a term I had scarcely heard. But in doing so, he becomes a follower of Vodalus in much the way someone becomes a Christian, simply by saying so. And he says it as though he's it's always been true, but in fact, it hasn't been true until this moment. And it's right after then that, that he has the next famous passage, where he says, we believe that we invent symbols. The truth is that they invent us. We are their creatures, shaped by their hard, defining edges. When soldiers take their oath, they're given a coin, 
a Nassimi stamped with a profile of the autarch. Their acceptance of that coin is their acceptance of the special duties and burdens of military life. They are soldiers from that moment, though they may know nothing in the management of arms. I did not know that then, but it is a profound mistake to believe that we must know of such things to be influenced by them. And in fact, to believe so is to believe in the most debased and superstitious kind of magic. The would-be sorcerer alone has faith in the efficacy of pure knowledge. Rational people know that things act of themselves or not at all. <laughs> so a lot going on there. I mean, he's obviously he's he's sort of saying, you know, this is what happened when soldiers do it. They make an oath and then they're given a coin. Well, also what's just happened. He's just made an oath to Vodalus, who's about yeah. to give him a coin. Vodalus puts a coin in his hands. It's a small coin. So smooth. It felt greased. Greased. Yep. Which we'll come back to that. And that's a hint. <laughs> that's yeah. the way he gives hints. The but yeah, it, it, he's going to give him a coin. And he says that people believe that that if you, you have to understand the meaning of a symbol for it to have an effect. And he's saying, no, no, no. The symbols are, power, are powerful because they're powerful. People speak of them and describe them because they're powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And in that last line, he says, rational people know that things act of themselves or not at all. Um, which is an interesting way to put things because he's just now talking about how symbols make us who we are, which goes back to the thing about the words, which says that words act on things that are weaker than them. So when he talks about rational people know that things act of themselves or not at all, it's almost like he's not saying that people are really the things that act, but it's more the symbols are the things that act, um, which is an odd, I mean, I'm not sure if I got the sort of logic of that right, but it seems like that's what he's really suggesting here, that if we're thinking about, okay, who's actually controlling the things in this part of the story, the symbols are controlling things, not necessarily the people. And there's a reason why I want to say that. I'll just kind of leave it like it is <laughs> for now because I have <laughs> other ideas of how that what that really means later on. But um, for right now, I oh, just, I have I, I have so many ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot, but I actually think something about that idea of the symbols are what are acting, and in some ways, they're where you know a term you could say they're where agency comes from, not from people. Uh, that's a different way of thinking about freedom and free will than I think a lot of people usually think about. But I'm just going to leave that there because that's for another discussion some other time. So Vodalus, having given Severian the coin, makes an exit, walking into the fog, and then Severian sees his silver flyer, another technology not common in the Citadel, available only to exultants like Vodalus. I suppose I should mention that that coin that was so smooth it felt greased, a greasy smooth coin is a sign of a counterfeit. Yeah. And he's going to find out it's counterfeit, but Wolf has already given us a hint. So and on the one hand, that seems like an interesting plot point. That also seems really interesting connected to what we just talked about, symbols having power. Well, if the coin is a symbol that is making him into something, and if the coin is a fake, what does that mean for Severian? Um, yeah. You know, if he's committed himself to something false and that false, you know, cause or symbol or whatever it is is false then what's going to happen to him but all you know all symbols in a sense are false when you see a, a cross on a wall it's, it's not an execution device and it's not even a cross in the sense that it was historically meant it's it's a symbol mm -hmm. of a cross and it's a symbol of not of execution but of many other things and so these things this is the sense in which the authenticity of a symbol is is in itself a, a red herring yeah and i think that ambiguity is really pretty important too and that goes back to one of the bigger questions i think about the book is is severian actually sort of in charge of his destiny here or is he being manipulated and used by you know the high rows and and all these other forces to set humanity back on its proper path. But one interesting thing about that ambiguity of the symbol is also to take a big jump to a really big picture. But I often wonder if one thing Wolf is kind of asking with these books is, does it matter if Severian was manipulated or was doing these things of his own free will, if in the end you sort of achieve the same goals? It's kind of an, a St. Augustinian concept of predestination versus free will. We're going to talk about that issue many more times, but we're close to just finishing the chapter right now. So now we know that Severian is a torturer. He's an employee 
of the legal department that exacts punishments against criminals and revolutionaries. But Severian says that there was nothing contradictory in him being a member of the guild, as they called it, and being a follower of Odalis. The only virtue, he says, that he learned at the guild that he ever internalized was loyalty to the guild. So he could be loyal to the guild and simultaneously disloyal to the autarch that they served. Like you always have your father's back who goes to work every day at an offshore oil platform to put food on your table and put you through college, even if you know, you're some uh, radical who hates the evil petroleum company that's melting the glaciers of Erebus's kingdom. So we've already mentioned Master Gerloise from the Guild. And in the last paragraph of the chapter, we learn that the other names of the Masters, there's Master Marubius and Master Palimon and, of course, uh, Master McGonagall. No, no. We also get a final bit of foreshadowing that <laughs> this moment when Severian becomes a follower of Odalus, a rebel against the vile reign of the Autarch, is the moment that Severian began the long journey by which I have backed into the throne. It's a complicated route by which he gets there. Yes, indeed. Curiositas Urthus. And now we come to the portion of the show we have opted to call Curiositas Urthus in which we pay tribute to a new sun theory of note relevant to the part of the story we are rereading. So we don't want to sound like we're making fun of these ideas because honestly, some of them might turn out to be true, but what we're going to try to do is dig through and find something that's a really wild speculation about that chapter. The point of this segment is that as surely as to read Wolf is to reread Wolf to reread Wolf is to construct a beautiful outlandish eye-splitting theory to pull disparate parts together so that it all makes sense. We went back and forth on whether we should cite these, and we decided not to right now just because, like I said, we don't want to seem like we're making fun of someone. We might change our minds in the future, though. But that said, if you do want credit, just get in touch with us. Okay. So, Craig, the one I have for this first chapter was proffered some time ago on the Earth List. It is that the body Vodalus and Thea and Hildegrin are dragging from her grave this dark and gloomy night is, in fact, Severian's mother. Now, as you know, if you're listening to this podcast, we are told the name of Severian's mother. We're told by Owen, Severian's biological father, son of Dorcas. Her name is Catherine. To get the breadth of this theory, you have to have read Earth of the New Sun. Near the end of that novel, Severian looks down on a weeping olive-skinned woman surrounded and led away by Praetorians. Severian feels a sense of deja vu. This is decades in the future. The theory goes that this is his mother, and so it is postulated that Valeria has captured her, escaping her death sentence through the time tunnels, I suppose. She's sending her back to her fate to have her head chopped off every year or be otherwise executed. Okay. So that's mine. What do you got? Well, that's pretty good. At least it has an explanation for what's going on. So mine is also about the corpse's identity. Although I found someone who said that they think it's actually Thecla, but Thecla from an earlier uh, timeline. It's really hard to follow the thinking in how this works, but basically Thecla has come back many, many times, and even Thea is a clone of Thecla, was what I found in this one. Um, just odd, <laughs> just because it went way off the rails, but pretty sure since we haven't even met Thecla yet and since the face is not given all the normal Thecla sort of identifiers that we get probably not her all that being said I still don't know who that corpse is so I would love an answer and that's it for chapter one next time we'll be moving on chapter two Severian where we find out what happened just before all of this and spoil alert he drowns <laughs> So if you do have questions or disagree with anything that we've said or have alternate theories, please feel free to share them with us. You can do that on Twitter at Rereading Wolf. You can do it on the Facebook page for the Rereading Wolf podcast. We will respond to you on social media, but we'll also be happy to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, and leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to your podcasts. Leave a five-star rating if you liked us. And if you don't, then just 
forget I said anything. <laughs> is Stitcher the one you use? I just use the uh, the iTunes, iTunes app on my phone. Yeah, yeah. I like um, Castbox is a good one. It's my my little orange icon, um, but that's one I've been using for a while. And the comments are more meaningful than the star ratings. So if you leave a star rating, go ahead and, and leave a comment too. You can also check out the website, which is rereadingwolf.podbean.com. That's where all of the official notes for the podcast will get posted once we get around to getting them up there. <laughs> and otherwise, I think we will see you in chapter two. All right. Take care, everybody. We met at nine. We met at eight. I was on time. No, you were late. Ah, yes. I remember it well. That dazzling April moon. There was none that night. And the month was June. That's right. That's right. It warms my heart to know that you remember still the way you do. Ah, yes. I remember it well. Darn it, I totally had a very smooth segue into something else. Well, you can still work that smooth segue <laughs> in and no one will know. Segway. <laughs>